We do have some additional copies of the notes. So Larry has some and Len has some. If you want to get their attention, if you need the notes, and they'll get some to you. Here's what's coming up over the next few weeks. This evening, we begin a new six-week segment of home groups, community groups. So those meet at several locations. And we encourage everybody to be a part of a community group. And because we have these six-week segments, and then with a number of weeks off in between, it offers an opportunity for open enrollment uh, four times a year, really. So this is a window of opportunity for you to do that if you're so inclined, and we encourage you to get inclined uh, if you're not. And if not now, think about it next time we start up. But if you want to know where they're meeting and where you might be able to attend, uh, give your name over at the Information Center. That's the table over by the windows before you go. But that starts up tonight. And then this Wednesday at 7 o'clock, men, at the Patrick Henry Middle School, we resume men's fraternity. So we did that last fall from uh, September into, we might have gone into December, I can't remember. But that semester we've been off for this period of time. And now we're starting up a new segment of that. And we're starting it earlier than the rest of our midweek program because it requires 16 weeks. And so in order for it to end at the same time everything else ends, we need to start it this Wednesday. Uh, So it is starting this Wednesday, 7 o'clock, Patrick Henry Middle School. The first three weeks, men's fraternity will meet there on Wednesdays. And then on February 6th, it will meet at the ministry center on the same night that we start the rest of our midweek program. We're also offering men's fraternity like we did last fall on Friday morning. So it's Wednesday night at 7, first three weeks at Patrick Henry, then starting on February 6th at the Ministry Center. But also every Friday morning, the same thing that's covered on Wednesday will be covered on Friday. That's 6 a.m., so you're in time to go to work or take kids to school or whatever. And that's at the Allen Park Community Center. So you can take either of those if you're... If you take the Wednesday normally and you are late from work or something, you can't meet it, then you could show up on Friday that week so that you don't miss. So uh, both of those opportunities, and they start up uh, this week, both of them, okay? And we are looking to move in to our ministry center, as we've been saying, the first week of February. First Sunday is February 3rd, so three weeks from today, Lord willing, we'll, uh, we'll be in there. And uh, then that following Wednesday, February 6th, we'll have our full complement of um, ministries for the midweek program. So please keep praying about that. Uh, There are a number of things that need to fall into place, but the most important one is we have to satisfy the city that things are safe. Uh, And even if we are not able to finish every task we wanted to, as long as it's functional and safe and all of that, then we're moving in, okay? Uh, And we think that 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 will happen. We're quite sure it will happen. So, but continue to pray about it, and if you can help us get from here to there, uh, then, and you haven't volunteered as yet, to get on the volunteer list that Ken Rapp is assembling for several more work days between now and then, then you can do that by talking to him, uh, calling him, or the email address we're using for that that goes to him is MC Ministry Center, mc at communitybaptist.to. All right, we are several weeks in to this series, Biblical Worldview 101, and you all should have some notes in front of you. 
If not, follow along with somebody next to you. Um, and the guys who, yeah, do that. We have more. So if you want some, you can get them over by the door if you need them. But as we look at Biblical Worldview 101, one of the things that uh, we're, uh, we're, we're trying to do is get our arms and minds around this, this notion of viewing the world from God's perspective, and God's perspective is given to us in Scripture. And so what does God say about the world, and how can we categorize the things that we experience and observe in the world such that we see them clearly from God's standpoint. That's the idea for Biblical Worldview 101. And I've given you three categories under which really everything fits. If you're going to have a worldview, a view of everything that is consistent with God's perspective. And those, those three categories are orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And orientation, we've already looked at in the first couple of lessons in your notes, but orientation is the fact that God is the creator and we are the the creatures, and God is the creator and designer and therefore owner of everything in his world. So orientation is creation, and it's who God is and what he expects of us. God as the creator has communicated, oriented his creatures to the world he's placed them in. And he has given us information about himself, about ourselves, and his purpose for putting us here. And you find that in the opening pages of Scripture. God makes the first man and woman. He makes them alone with the ability to receive verbal communication from him, to engage in returning verbal communication to him and with each other. So they are God's crown jewel of his creation. They alone are made in his image, and that image includes the ability to communicate, receive, and to, and to give communication. And so God tells them, God said to them, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26, be fruitful and, and multiply. And God tells them that you can enjoy everything in the garden, but of the tree that's in the midst of the garden... You may not eat, and in the day you eat of it, you will surely die, and you all, you all know that. And so the man and the woman enjoy communion, fellowship with God, this God who meets with them, who speaks to them. They are able to understand Him. They know Him. They are able to, to communicate to Him. And then, chapter 3, they are tested. And God tests them uh, to see... Uh, if they will to determine, to make known whether or not they are going to follow his directive. And we know the sad story. They disobey. And that disobedience carries a number of, of consequences. Now, this is just as a quick aside, but some of you may, if you're awake and if you're thinking about anything I've been saying, which is doubtful, but nonetheless... You may ask yourself, you know, how long were they communing with God and fellowshipping with God? And the Bible doesn't say, you know, three weeks or a month or a year. It doesn't tell us. So that's the short answer. But there are just a couple of lines of evidence that this test occurred fairly quickly. Uh, and, and one is a serpent was walking 
and talking. And nobody went, hey, there's a serpent that's talking. That's really weird. So it appears they hadn't been there long enough, terribly long, to know that this is, this is really weird. So, so that's one. But the other thing, and more important, is that you remember when they disobeyed. At the end of Genesis chapter 3, they are banished from the garden, and God places uh, cherubim at the entrance to the garden with flashing swords and so that they cannot re-enter the garden lest they eat of a second special tree in the garden, the tree of life. So God is keeping them away from the tree of life. So apparently this test and encountering the forbidden tree occurs before they get to the tree of life. Because if they eat of the tree of life, they'll live forever. So they haven't encountered, apparently, the tree of life. God purposely has them encounter this tree first as this probationary test. They fail it, and as a result, they never get to the tree of life. They are banished. Now, it would just end that way if God were not merciful. You're banished from the tree of life, and you have no access to it. But thanks be to God, there's a third portion of a biblical worldview. The first two are orientation, God creating who He is and what He expects from us. But the second one is the entrance of sin into God's world, the fall or disorientation. But the third is that God is actively making right what has gone wrong as a result of the entrance of sin. And that's redemption or reorientation. So there is creation orientation, the fall disorientation, redemption reorientation. And in God's redemption, we have access to the tree of life. And you find the tree of life mentioned in Scripture again in the very last, last chapter of the Bible. And you have a vision there of people eating freely of the tree of, of life. So the book of Genesis and the book of Revelation bookend each other, and this, this special tree, the tree of life, shows up at the beginning of Genesis and at the end of Revelation to uh, serve as a kind of envelope in which the story of redemption and reorientation fits. So orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. And on page 9, we've been, excuse me, page 8, we've been looking at the second of those three, disorientation. And you see at the top of page 8, we've seen the original orientation of man to God and his world. But the Bible informs us that God's good purpose was distorted by the fall, the entrance of sin. And as a result, sinful man became disoriented two ways. Vertically, that is toward God, horizontally toward his environment and toward other people. And we are, have begun to, to look at those. And we started looking at the vertical effect, middle of page 8, of sin now and how man's view of the world in which God has placed him became distorted. Originally clear, God gave clear instructions, now nothing fits, nothing works. And the Bible tells us that as a result of this fall, notice chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, we have it quoted for you there, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God. We left off there last week. And I said that when you read that phrase, they hid from the Lord God, that it ought to break your heart. It ought to affect you in a very negative way. 
that people made in the image of God, made to enjoy fellowship with God, are now hiding from God. (coughs) And all of the junk that you observe in the world, all of the stuff that is done to you living in a fallen world, all of the sinful contribution that you and I make toward the fallenness of this world, every last piece of it goes back to this. So the things we do, the things that are done to us, and all of the negative effects that we see around us, disease, suffering, death, hunger, malnutrition, drug abuse, addictions of all types, crime, violent and nonviolent, slander, envy, all of the, every negative thing, every bad thing, that happens in the world goes back to this. People separated from God. God was, is, and will always be the lifeline for all of His creation. And when His creation is separated from Him, they come into the world spiritually dead says the Bible. We won't take the time to turn there, but Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, says that we were all by nature objects of wrath, that we come into the world dead in our trespasses and sins. And then it goes on to say in verse 5, but God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. So we come into the world dead, obviously not physically dead, spiritually dead, that is, separated from God, still hiding from God. And then we, we manifest the effects of that separation from God from moment one. And you as a baby did that. And your cute baby does that. And they grow up to be bigger babies who continue to do that. And so do you. And unless there's a but God who is rich in mercy, it continues that way. But thankfully, God is on his redemption mission, reorienting his world. So the nature of man in a biblical worldview is evil, sinful. And all the junk results from that. And because the nature of man is evil, and because, as we're going to see, the environment in which man plays out that evil has also been cursed, you now have both nature and nurture. You have heredity and environment, and both of them have profound effects upon us. That's a biblical worldview and how it explains mass shootings, how it explains natural disasters. The Bible explains all of that in terms of the curse of sin, both on our nature and on, on, on the, the world around us, the environment as well. Now, if you don't see it that way, man is not evil. People are not born with a sin nature. If you don't see it from a biblical standpoint, then your alternatives are two. Man is either neutral, a blank slate, Or, man is positively good. So those are your choices. Neither of them are biblical choices. The Bible teaches that man is sinful. 
But those are the choices that, that people make. And depending on the choice you make, then it will affect profoundly the way you see the world, its problems, and what the solutions are. So we saw last week, if you believe that man is evolving, not only physically and biologically, but man is also evolving in terms of his character, in terms of his nature, and he is becoming better, then you will see man progressing in his nature, in his character. We saw last week that's called progressivism. And progressives believe that. So if you're a progressive, that's also known as liberal, but liberalism's fallen on hard times. But liberal progressive. If you're a liberal progressive, you need to think, as we all do, about the undergirding assumptions that go into our view of the world, including our view of the political world, the scientific world. Every aspect of God's world and how we see it is affected by the lens through which we view it. So if you are a progressive, you see not just things progressing, things hopefully getting better, and all of us want that, that tomorrow's better than today, but rather that people are actually progressing. And if that's true, that has profound effects on the way you see stuff. So there might have been a time when people believed that homosexuality was sinful. But there will come a time if you, are, if you truly believe the progressive worldview and that man's nature is getting better, there will come a time where we will move past that. We will progress past that. And many believe we have now arrived. We are at a pivotal point in human development. Say they. And that pivotal point has come to America. And you are going to see that played out as you are and over the next few years and before the Supreme Court. Now, if all that's true, we're getting better, we're progressing, not just progress, but we're progressing in our nature, we're getting better, then we'll move past some of the old taboos and all of that. And so the Bible might need to be amended, a la Piers Morgan, authority that he is. Or, how are you going to fit the Constitution into this? How are you going to, how, how are you going to make the Constitution? I mean, somehow you've got to make the Bible fit it? Because the Bible's static. The Bible was written, the last book was written 2,000 years ago. And yet we're not static, say the progressives. We've moved past that. How are you going to put those two together? Piers Morgan says, change the Bible. I appreciate his honesty. Here's the other thing you could do. You could just change the way you interpret the Bible to fit where we think we are, which is what the more dishonest do, just to be blunt. So the Bible never really did condemn. Or if it did condemn, that was in the Dark Ages, and now we can put a new interpretation on it. Now, that battle is going on with interpretation of the Bible for a long time. The same thing happens politically with the Constitution. You all know that? So there's actually a progressive approach to the Constitution. Did you all know that Woodrow Wilson is called the father of progressivism? 
and that, and that he said we need, to, uh, we need to discard the Constitution, that the Constitution is too confining. In his view, we have entered, you know, this, this golden age, and we are moving into this golden age. Well, we're about 100 years past him now, and I miss the golden age. But nonetheless, that's what he thought in terms of progressivism. But you still got these static documents. The Bible 2,000 years ago, the, the, the Constitution over 200 years ago, we're moving, they're not. What do you do with them? Well, you're going to have to interpret them as living and breathing and changing with us. And that's a theory of the Constitution that some of you have heard called the living Constitution that the Constitution is a living document, that the Constitution changes as we change. And we need an interpretation of it now that fits with our progress. And so this is why uh, Robert Bork, when he was nominated to the Supreme Court in 1986, he got borked. That became a verb. He was voted down, but he championed something called an interpretation of the Constitution called original intent. So the idea was, what did the Constitution mean to the people who first wrote it and first read it? What was, it a, what was its original meaning? And that original meaning now needs to be applied to current circumstances. By the way, I do that every single week with the Bible. Every single week. What did it mean? Now what is it, how does it apply to us? So that's what he was saying. I remember as a you know, college student, in my 20s, listening to this, and I'm going, that's what we do with the Bible. That's what we do with old documents. We want to know what they meant to the people who first wrote them and first read them. That's what they mean. I've just got this old-fashioned view that a text cannot mean what it never meant. And so, if the Eighth Amendment says and pro prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, and it does, then we've got we to have some ideas of what cruel and unusual is. So how are you going to know that? Well, what did the people who wrote it think it meant? What did the people who first read it think it meant? The people who first ratified the Bill of Rights, of which the Eighth Amendment is a part, what did they think? Did they think that capital punishment was cruel and unusual by its very nature? If you execute somebody, if the state uses its power to execute somebody, is that by definition cruel and unusual? Well, they did it all the time. All the time. So whatever you want to say, it didn't mean that to Madison. It didn't mean that to Jefferson. So what are you going to do with that? If the Constitution is living, the, interpret the meaning changes to fit modern circumstances. Now, the founders, I think, were fairly smart guys. And they knew they didn't, and yet they knew they didn't know everything. And they knew that the Constitution would need to be updated, changed. So they gave a process baked into the Constitution for doing that an amendment process. You change it. 
by amending it. But it's a really hard process. They thought it should be hard to do that. And they made it hard. You know, three-fourths of the states have to, have to ratify the amendment and so on. And so it's only happened, you know, a couple dozen times. And so it's hard, and it takes a long time. It's much quicker if you get somebody who looks at the world the way you do to interpret the words the way you think they should. And so that's a battle that you need to be aware of. And I need to be aware of that has its roots in how you see the nature of man and whether or not the nature of man has progressed past the old stuff. And if that's the case, how does the old stuff get lined up with where we are? Amend the Bible, amend the Constitution, or simply interpret them in a way that lines up with where we are. Now, why am I telling you that? Not because I want to have a political rally. Not because I want anybody here mad at me. You know, I don't want to, I'm not looking to do either of those. I'm simply trying to show you the effects of worldview on real-life stuff. This affects real life, and it affects real life and how it af- and life affects you. And how you view things in the political world, in the social world, uh, in in. In, in the family world, in every, in every world that we touch, the lens through which we see it determines how we see it. And so if you look at page 8 then, the man and the woman hid from the Lord. Among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered. And God says, Where are you? Does God know where he is? Okay, so God does this, you know, and he's setting Adam up. Having set Adam up, Adam says, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid. And then Adam, in his sin, in his nervousness, in being caught, he lies. So he's already sinned, now he lies to cover his sin, because he says, I hid, and I want you to know why I hid. Because I was naked. Now, just think about this for a second. Adam says that in verse 8 through 10, I hid because I was naked. And he's lying to God. I'm going to show you that he's lying in a minute. But he lies to God. And how did this guy's perspective, Adam's perspective, so radically alter in just this moment of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, such that the God with whom he had fellowship and for whom he was made, he is now lying to. You see how instantaneously this thing changed, radically. That Adam thinks he can lie to God? Adam, you're stupid. Now, at this point, he is. But this is, this is a lesson from a biblical worldview. Sin is stupid. Just, that's my scholarly way of putting it. Sin is stupid. It is, sin is irrational. Sin causes otherwise smart people to do really stupid stuff. Have you ever considered this? Satan initiates this encounter in the garden. 
the serpent speaks. As we're going to see, God pronounces effects on the man, the woman, the serpent, the environment. God says, I'm going to send one through the seed of the woman who's going to crush your head. God has sent that one. He has won the victory. The passage Pastor Matt read from Colossians chapter 2 says that that he made, Christ made a public spectacle of his enemies, triumphing over them by his cross, Colossians 2 and verse 15. Satan knows he's, his days are numbered. He's known that for millennia. But he keeps going. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches Revelation chapter 20 that there will be a thousand-year period called the kingdom, the millennium. And Christ will reign from a throne in Jerusalem. And the Bible says toward the end of the thousand years, Satan will be loosed. God has him chained for that thousand years. At the end, he, God allows him, okay, give it another shot. Now, what do you think a rational being would do? Look, the gig is up. Christ is on the throne. I don't have a chance. But what does he do? He goes out and tries again. John Cougar Mellencamp, that great theologian. I fight authority. Anybody know the rest? And authority always wins. But the point is, I keep fighting it. I fight authority. Authority always wins. But why do you keep fighting it then? Because you're stupid. And why are you stupid? Because sin is stupid. And you see it in Satan, and you see it in you, and you see it in me, and you see it in the world around you. And so here, stupid Adam, I'm just doing this in my adult class. I used the word stupid in a sermon once. We had kids out there, and I got attacked by parents. I told my kid not to say stupid. Okay, so don't let them listen to the R-rated recordings that I do here with (laughs) the word stupid. So here's Adam saying, I hid. You know, God just says, where are you? So Adam could just say, here. That's the question. But how many times have you done this with your kids? All right, I ask the question, and just stuff starts tumbling out of the mouth because I'm making excuses. So instead of just answering the question, here's where I am, I'm here, and here's why I'm here. Because I was naked. I can almost see him next to Eve going, he'll never know. How will he possibly know? I mean, he just made all this stuff and made us, but sin is stupid. But he's not naked. This is verses 8 through 10. Verse 7 tells us that they had made fig leaves for themselves. They covered themselves. The problem was not physical nakedness. The problem was guilt before the God who made them. And as a result now of a change, a radical altering of the nature of man, they see the world differently. They see themselves differently. They see God differently. And now they interact with God on this sinful basis. Man hiding from God. Romans 1 teaches that humanity has continued to hide from God ever since. 
And I said, when you read this phrase, it should make, you should weep, it should affect you negatively because this is the font, this is the source of all the stuff, all the junk that you see around you, that, that you and I participate in as sinners. That's all, that's all true. But it's not just the overt sin and the addiction and all of the problems of the world. It is all of that. It's not just that. People irrationally hide from God by constructing, hear this, by constructing religions designed to shield them from the true and living God. Religion shields people from the true and living God. The Bible teaches. You say, why are there all these religions? Romans 1 teaches it is because people are hiding from God. They know there's a God because God made that knowledge, baked that knowledge into them. They can't escape that. So Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. Everybody sees that. Romans 1 says that, that they, they know God. In fact, they knew the God, literally it says. They knew the God, but they did not glorify Him as God. But they then constructed things to worship. Created things rather than the Creator, says Romans 1. Now why are they doing that? I've got to deal with God. And I know I need a God, but I don't want a God who is too much God. Give me a little God. Give me a little bit of God. Give me a God who can be tamed. Give me a God who can be carved. Give me a God who can be fashioned. Give me a God that I can control. Give me a God made in my image rather than the other way around. And that is what all false religion is. God says it is so bad for you because of your nature that there ain't no hope for you unless I come to you. If there's going to be any hope for you as a result of this situation in Genesis 3, if there's going to be any hope, it's going to have to be me initiating it and me coming to you. And every non-biblical religion out there, bar none, reverses that direction. Rather than God coming to us, we construct a way somehow for us to have a relationship with God. And we determine, we define the terms in which that happens. Even religion is false religion, non-biblical religion, non-grace, non-gospel religion that has the direction us to God, a ladder for you to climb to God, which is what they all are. They are all simply ways of us trying to confine God as we continue to hide from God. So a biblical worldview, sin has messed up everything. And so when you see messed up stuff in your family, in your heart, in the mirror, at work, in the government, in Detroit, in Trenton, in Flat Rock, everywhere you see it messed up, your mind from a biblical worldview standpoint, goes right back here and says it's because of this. Now that in turn will affect what you think the solutions are. If what, everything I've said is true, if, if that's really what the Bible is teaching, people are by nature evil, they are not progressing, 
then what can change that? What is the solution to that? And it is only God initiating, God in His grace coming, God changing the nature from sin nature back to the nature of Christ, divine nature. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, He has given us His divine nature. Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 says that we are being conformed to the image of His Son. You come into this world with the image of Adam. God is now remaking us into the image of, of Christ. Remaking us into the image of what we were originally created to be. And that's why Christ is called the last Adam. So there's the vertical effect of sin. And the vertical effect of sin causes every other effect. It is always, at all time, in every place, first and foremost, a God thing. Whatever stuff you struggle with, whatever stuff people in your family struggle with, whatever you're reading in the newspaper, whatever you're seeing on TV, it is always, first and foremost, a God thing. Now, that severing of the relationship with God, that vertical effect, has other effects. Middle of page 8. The vertical effect then gives rise to the horizontal effect. Well, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Does God know this? And Adam is, you know, next to Eve. He's elbowed her at this point. He has said to her, I've got a plan. Let's lie. That didn't work. God's still asking questions. You know, it's like, so you know how it is on those cop shows? You got two suspects. You want one to turn on the other. So you get them in separate rooms. We only got one garden. I think, I assume they're, they're both hiding behind the same bush. And, God, and they got one interrogator. And God says, so who told you this? So rather than having a private moment with Adam, saying, did something malfunction with the woman? Will you turn on her? He just, apparently in her presence, says, the woman you gave me. He throws her under whatever, a, a bus. <laughs> throws her under the, another bush. And he says the first thing that out of his mouth is, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. So this is the horizontal effect. Now this is the same guy. And, and if you want to get the full effect, you have to read this in light of chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Because in verse 18, God says of chapter 2, it is not good that the man be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. But God says that. It's not good. I'm going to do, and he doesn't do it right away. He has two verses in between, verses 19 and 20. And in those two verses, Genesis chapter 2, verses 19 and 20, the Bible says, And God paraded the animals two by two, male and female, before Adam. And whatever name Adam gave to them, that was its name. And so God has already objectively stated it's not good for man to be alone. And he has already promised this is what I'm going to do. 
But before God does it, he wants Adam to subjectively see his need for what he's going to give. So before he actually does it, he parades the animals. And Adam's watching the animals, and they're two by two. And then the Bible says, but for Adam, no helper was found. And then it says, now that Adam has been made to realize he needs a good gift from God, this good God gives him this good gift. And God presents, causes the sleep to fall on Adam. You all remember that? Takes the rib, creates her. Adam awakes, and Adam goes. And if I could whistle, I would just do one of those whistles. But I don't know how to whistle. But that's what he does. He whistles in Hebrew or something. (laughs) And he has been made to realize, I need this good gift. And this good God has given me this marvelous gift, and he sings the praises of God for doing this. This same guy throws her under the bus. And ever since the battle of the sexes goes on, marriage problems go on, all going back to that garden and that couple. The woman you gave me. Now notice, first words are the woman. He says, the woman you put here with me. So this is not just, you know, the woman. I know I whistled, but I didn't know what she was really like. And got into this thing, and here I am. But the truth of the matter is, God, you put her here. You made her. You're supposed to be the creator. I mean, you're supposed to like know everything. And you give me this one. You give me a defect. There's something wrong with this one. You gave me a defective model. Can you whip some dust together and make another one? This is not just an accusation about the woman. This is an accusation about about God. And remember, everything flows from the breakdown of the vertical relationship. So it's not just... When we have our battles horizontally in the home, at work, in society, whatever they are. When we have those, guys and gals, it all goes back to first another battle going on. And isn't that what we saw in James chapter 4? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? And then verse 5 of James 4 says, Do you think the Scripture says for nothing that the Spirit He causes cause to live in you envies intensely so God is in that battle and the first battle that we lose when we engage in battles externally on the horizontal level the first battle we lose is the battle in our hearts for our affections to be Godward and so that's what's happened with with Adam it's the woman but then there's an accusation she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent. So he says the woman, she says the serpent. And notice what I say at the bottom there. From this day forward, blame shifting to others, including God, became natural. So all the blame shifting that you do and that I do and that others do in our presence... All of it goes back here because they start blame shifting like real fast. I can't tell you how many times I've had people sit across my desk 
And the entire session is them shifting blame. Shifting blame to their upbringing, shifting blame to their spouse, shifting blame to their circumstances. All of those things play a role on us because, as we're going to see, the environment has been affected. They all play a role. But the root, the Bible is very clear, that the root that causes us to express who we are as we do in that environment, the root of that is our hearts, is our sin nature. And my job as a counselor and your job as a counselor, as you dispense wisdom over a cup of coffee, is to help people to see that what is ultimately broken is that our affections are no longer Godward. Our affections go to someone and something else. And we create idols that we pursue that are contained in a bottle, in a pill, in an image on a screen, in a vision for what I could have in terms of my wealth and my riches if I just pursue mammon rather than God. You can fill in the blank for your select idol. And all of it goes back to that. Now, we're going to look at the environmental effect next week, Lord willing. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for giving us a lens, a clear lens, contained in the pages of Scripture for what the world was meant to be, why the world as it is, is as it is, and what the world will one day become because of your redemptive mission. Lord, we thank you for the hope that we have the confident expectation that things will be made new and that we will participate in a new heaven and a new earth. In the meantime, we thank you that you have told us how we are to behave and how we are to repair to you for our sustenance and the grace that we need every moment of every day in order to engage in a fallen world. Help us, Lord, to this week again see through sharper lenses, through, see through cleaned lenses, uh, repaired lenses. Lord, you have given us new, a new perspective by your Spirit and in your Word, but we allow them to become in, dis, in disuse, to become cracked, and, and, our, and our vision is distorted. We adopt the perspective of the world. And so, Lord, thank you for these sessions so that we can be reminded of how we are to see ourselves, how we're to see those around us, how we're to see you most of all. Help us to do that this week. And then bring us back, we ask you, safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.